Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as a lead pastor, and I I realized um, with the start of 2013, it marks the 18th year that I've served here at this church. And uh, it's been a really wonderful, wonderful 18 years. I'm just happy that by God's grace, I've endured this long and haven't made a mess of everything. And I just really feel like this year, I can't shake it. I think 2013 is going to be a very special year for a lot of people at our church. I think it's going to be the year that sleeping souls wake up. I think for some of you in your families, it's going to be the year that the person in your family who is farthest from God will awaken to God. You won't recognize the person by the end of the year. Uh, And it won't be because you've nagged or pleaded or cajoled, but it's because God will have revealed himself to that person and something profound is going to happen in their life. And I'll just say that because I'm hoping by my saying it, it'll brainwash you. But because whenever I pray for our church, you know, coming into this new year, that's this very strong conviction I get is that 2013 is going to be an amazing year for a lot of our people. And so keep that in the back of your minds as we get into the Word of God this morning. The title of the message is The Cost of Discipleship. Right away, that's probably going to be a huge turnoff and an invitation to zone out for some of you because we really don't, you know, we don't like, by the way, I got this, this Jesse J song price tag has been stuck in my head all week. I can't get it out. Uh, and, and actually, I like that song a lot. I like the lyrics. But it's this idea that we don't like, you know, here's the thing. We don't like the idea of paying for anything, do we? We get offended when an app on our iPhone requires money. We expect everything to be free, every web service, every social media thing. And so the idea of cost is repugnant to people in the modern world. But I think it's important that we talk soberly about what it costs to follow Jesus Christ. And I want to read for you from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Here's what it says. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have 
cannot be my disciples. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to read that passage without getting a little agitated in my spirit. If that doesn't bother you, you are just not awake. <laughs> You're sleeping. And the only way you can handle a passage like this is by becoming unconscious. Because if you are awake, it will get at you. It'll make you wonder if your experience of being called Christian lines up with what Jesus here is saying about how he thinks being a Christian is. Any fans of Shakespeare in the room? You guys, I don't want to out myself as a complete nerd, but yes, I like Shakespeare. Shakespeare is cool. Um, if, I don't know if you saw the movie Anonymous. We're not even sure if it's William Shakespeare or somebody else who, who stole his, who, he got the credit for somebody else's work. But I love reading Shakespeare. I used to read a lot of it in high school because I think that the language is difficult, but the, the guy's ideas for stories so capture the essence of human drama. He understood people really well. And in, in one of his works called The Merchant of Venice, there's a very interesting story. It's, it's a very complex story, but one of the, the interesting parts of it is that there's a young man named Bassanio who wants to, to win the hand of, of Portia in marriage. Uh, this, this beauty, this young beauty named Portia, she's from a well-to-do family, and she's very, very physically beautiful, and she has a lot of suitors who are after her. Well, Bassanio goes to her, her house to seek her hand in marriage, but her late father has left a will with some very specific stipulations for anyone who would get his daughter's hand in marriage. And what he's done is he's, he's created three what they call caskets, but really they're, they're chests um, that are f- made out of different metals and filled with something, and each of these chests has a different inscription. One chest is made of gold, and on it is this inscription, Who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. The second chest was made of silver, and on it read this inscription, Who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves. And then the third chest was made out of lead, which even in those days was worthless. And here's what it said. Who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath. Now, each of these three chests was presented to whatever suitor would come calling, and he would have to pick one of them, and if he chose the right chest, he would win Portia's hand in marriage. By the way, it's P-O-R-T-I-A, Portia, not the car, so stop thinking about the car. And so Bassanio goes to the house, and there are, he, there's no shortage of suitors. There are two other guys waiting in line ahead of him. The Prince of Morocco picks the gold chest, presuming that what many men desire is Portia. And so he, he figures, I'm going to get the gold and the girl. Eh, wrong answer. The Prince of Aragon comes up next, and he thinks of silver because he has a very high opinion of himself. And he says, you know, I'm the kind of guy who deserves a girl like her. I'm going to get the silver and the girl. Eh, wrong answer. Now, of, of course, they don't get to see each other's choices. And so Bassanio steps in the room. He sees these three. And like anybody, he's drawn to the first two. But Portia happens to like Bassanio. So her, her, her uh, assistant starts singing a song hinting, uh, pick the lead one, pick the lead one. So he picks the lead one. And the inscription is very ominous. While the first two speak all about the benefits, the third one speaks only about the cost. It says, whoever takes this chest must be willing to give up everything he has. 
And of course, that's the right one. And it makes all the sense in the world because as a father, you would want the guy marrying your daughter not to think he's adding the girl to his treasure, but that he is trading his treasure for the girl. Do you understand why that's so important? Because the heart that drives you to make a choice reveals a lot about how your life experience will be. And I I share that story because I think it's very illustrative of the way many of us approach the gospel and, and understand what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. We have majored so much on the benefits of being with God that we haven't dwelled very long on the real cost of following Christ. So I want if you're a Christian, this only applies to those who would identify themselves as followers of Jesus, as Christ followers. Let me ask you a question, and I don't want you to just gloss over it. It's not a rhetorical question. I actually want you to think deeply about your answer to this question. When you realize that you placed your trust in Jesus, you are saved, you are now a Christian, what did you think was supposed to happen next? In other words, when you got saved, what life do you think God was inviting you into after that point? Just think about that for a second. Now, I don't want you to think what the right answer is. I want you to think about what you thought was happening at that moment. I I got salvation. Because it's an important question. And the reason it's important is your answer to that question explains your spiritual life right now. What it has meant to be a Christian is driven entirely by your understanding of what you think a Christian is and does. And I've met a lot of people in churches all over the world who are walking every day with a really, really strange and unbiblical and incorrect idea of what it means to follow Christ. And so they were walking through this life in the church, confused or upset most of the time. And when the times they weren't confused or upset, they were asleep or tuned out. Because none of this really made sense to them. And that's why it's so important you understand what God was inviting you into when he took your faith and your trust and he gave you salvation. You know, as I read Christian leadership books and attend Christian conferences these days, I think the the unspoken but subtle undertone is we measure success in terms of the size of the groups we lead. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's how they sell a conference. No one goes, hey, come to this conference. The speaker is Dave Lee. He is a a church of 200 in the suburbs of Chicago. Awesome. Come and learn how to do what he did. And everyone's like, yeah, I got 300 in my church. Well, how am I going to go and listen to that bozo? He might shrink my church. So when you see the conference brochure, when you go on the website, what does it always say? Come see this guy. He took a church from six to 17,000 in five years, wrote 860 books, speaks at eight conferences a day, married three women and has 25 children. I don't know. I mean, the idea is we, we define success in terms of productivity, numbers. And that seems to be the cultural cue of the day. So it's interesting that at the very start of this, Luke makes an observation. In those days, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. 
And turning to them, he said the following. Now, I don't know how you would complete that if you were writing the book. But I think many leaders today would say that's a win right there. They would, they would kind of stop paying attention and go, that's awesome. He's got large crowds following him. Let's get our best team together and figure out how to keep the momentum going. How do we retain these large crowds and hold the people together? Jesus, though, thinks very differently than we do, apparently, because he turns to these large crowds thronging after him, and he says some of the most strange and offensive stuff in the world. He turns to them and makes three very intense statements, none of which seem to be designed to draw anybody towards him. They are repugnant, repulsive kind of statements. It's what I would call a crowd reduction strategy. He's like, what are all these people doing? And he looks and he, rather than seeing a victory, he says, this is a problem. We've got thousands and thousands of hangers on loosely affiliated with us, listening to the words we say, but I can't rightly call them my followers. This is not the picture of the life I had intended for anyone. And so he turns to them and he addresses them. Now, here's the thing. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he speaking in such intense and repellent statements? It's not because he doesn't like people. It's not because he felt it a hassle to have such a large crowd, but It was basically this. He did not want anyone to misunderstand what he was inviting them to. He didn't want anyone saying, awesome, this is such a good life. Let's just go and not soberly understand what he was calling them to when he said, come, follow me. He was not inviting them to a casual stroll in the park. He was not inviting them to make him a part of their lives. Pause and listen to that again. He wasn't inviting people, would you make me a part of your life? That wasn't the invitation at all. No, what he was inviting them to was a complete trade. A great exchange. Give me the life you think is your life now. And all that it is, all that it stands for, all that it's worth, give it to me and I will exchange it for a whole new life. And this, in this new life, I will be the central figure of that story. In this new life I give you, I will be the show. And you will like that life way better than the life you were building before you met me. It, it's Jesus' attempt to make clear for everyone what following him meant and what it would cost. Because if you get that wrong, the rest of the journey will be confusing exercise and getting more and more lost with every passing day. You know, the gospel many of us responded to so heavily emphasized getting out of hell and getting into heaven, didn't it? I mean, that's the gospel I responded to about 50 times between second and sixth grade. I was so afraid of hell, I didn't even really want heaven. I just really did not want hell. And it stressed me out so much because my Sunday school teachers really beat that drum hard. Hell is not a good place. Heaven's better. Which one do you want, kids? What kind of stupid kids are going to go, I'm going to take my chances with hell. Thank you very much, sir. Who's that stupid? they They got me so stressed out. I was like, get me out of hell. I want into heaven so badly. And it became 
something of an obsession for me. Every time the Sunday school teachers made an altar call, I accepted Jesus again and again and again and again and again. But the one thing those teachers really didn't ever talk to me about was that after I got saved and placed my trust in him, a real life of followership begins. And that life has a cost. I never really heard much about that until I got to college. And that idea really started to rock me once I understood it. So let me talk to you, unpack this passage a little, about some costs of following Jesus. I think the first cost Jesus addresses here is loyalty. He says, if you want to follow me, it is going to cost you your highest loyalty. Listen to what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Some of you are like, oh, I already got that down. I hate my wife, man. I just, I'm obeying Jesus like crazy right now. I hate me some wife. You know, um, come on. You got to understand what he's actually saying here. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines loyalty this way. It's such an interesting way to define. It's unswerving allegiance. Loyalty is that thing or that person to whom you are unswervingly allegiant. You are allied to them, connected to them, devoted to them, so that whenever there is a contest presented to you in life where you must choose between one and the other, the thing you are loyal to will win every single time. When the Bears play the Packers, if you are a loyal Bears fan, you will cheer for the Bears even if you're at Lambeau, won't you? And there are always those brave souls who are in Soldier Field with a, a Packers jersey on. You're like, that, those, those guys are going to get killed in the parking lot. They better settle down. I once saw a guy at, at the Dallas game in Soldier Field. He was being very obnoxious because he was drunk, and he had a, a Dallas jersey on. I actually started to fear for his life. But he was so loyal, he would not shut up. See, no matter what dangers you face... What cost is expected of you, loyalty says this is how I'm going to decide every single time. I'm on autopilot when it comes to this choice. I don't have to deliberate. I don't have to analyze. When you ask me, do you want to keep your right arm or your wife, I'm going to be a one-armed man, right? I don't go, oh, give me a second. Let me really like this arm because I like my wife way more than I like my arm. Right, honey? Do you have to think about it? Do you have to, because loyalty is this. It's really about a personal priority scale. It's an overt measure of those things that have really grabbed hold of your heart and you make those things your priority every single time a decision has to be cast between two opposing things. Jesus feels so strongly about the fact that he must become our greatest loyalty, our first priority, so that in comparison to anything else, Jesus will win the decision every time in our lives. He is unflinching. Who but God could talk like this? Listen, I just want to be first in everything in your life. There is no close second. In, in this idea of following me, you cannot be my disciples unless your greatest loyalty falls with me. 
He felt so strongly, he used a very common Jewish um, turn of speech. Um, he, he uses the word hate, which is very common in Jewish literature and speech, to exaggerate how much you should love the other thing. In other words, you say, hey, do you want chocolate donuts or vanilla donuts? I hate vanilla donuts compared to how much I love chocolate donuts. Do you get the idea of what he's trying to say? He's not actually saying, so please don't misquote Jesus and start hating your family and feeling good about yourself. He's not saying hate anybody. He's saying, you should love me so much that in comparison, it looks like you hate everyone else. When you have to choose between me and anything else, what Jesus calls us to is to choose him every single time. Really what we're talking about is the concept of sacred. That's a concept that is leaking out of our culture today, isn't it? Everything's negotiable. Everything is up for discussion. But this idea that there are some things that are so important to us, they are inviolable. Even at the expense of my own life, I cannot cross that line. For me, it is not a matter of analysis. Every time it's Jesus or something else, even my very life, to follow Jesus must mean that Jesus comes first. Based on that standard, let me ask you, how is that going in your life right now? And I don't ask the question to shame you or to make you insecure or doubtful. I ask the question to prompt some real reflection because that's the kind of thing we should be doing at the start of a new year is taking stock of our understanding of things. The way you live is driven by how you think about life. And I'm going to ask you, where does Jesus fit really? into the priority scale of your life. This is a gesture we all understand in our culture today, right? You know what that is? It's basically scales. You're weighing, which one should I do? And, you know, you're at the store, you're like, honey, red sweater or blue sweater? And, you know, you're basically saying the one that weighs more is what you choose. And I'm asking you, honestly, based on the evidence of your life, where does Jesus fit into the personal priority structure for you? What are the competing loyalties that cause conflict? I mean, you can go as simple as Sunday service, your kid's football game. But, you know, you can get a little fair say with things like that. But this can really start to cost you when you think about where your loyalties really lie. Jesus says, don't be yoked to an unbeliever, but the man or woman you're in love with doesn't follow Jesus. They've got your heart. Now you're in a more serious, eh, eh. do I put my loyalties where my heart is? With this person with whom I cannot build a legitimate future, where to put it with Christ? See, this is not a casual question. Your Christian journey will hinge on how your loyalties fall. And if you want to have a genuine experience of Christianity, it's going to have to begin with a serious wrestling match over your priorities and your loyalties. Because Jesus does not leave room for a Christianity where he comes second or third or fourth. And so this is how we will define 
what it is to follow Jesus at our church. It doesn't mean we're all doing it perfectly, but we will stop pretending there's a second alternative. We're going to stop pretending there's an optional form of Christianity where Jesus does legitimately come in second because that is not a Christianity that the Bible speaks of at all. What Jesus says is to follow me is to have your highest loyalty fall with me every time. And that's all I really need to say about that. I just I want that to, to just kind of settle over you for a while this year and wrestle through your loyalties. Here's a, a second cost to following Jesus. Another repugnant word, obedience. We've written that out of wedding vows, I've noticed. I haven't in 18 years asked any woman to obey a man, partly because I haven't met that many men worth obeying. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) But it's because our culture doesn't like this language of obedience. We like agreement, consensus building, buy-in, but obedience is a little strong. Here's what Jesus says. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, listen to these words, cannot be my disciple. In other words, there is no version of discipleship or Christ followership in which a cross is not carried, in which we are not following him. You cannot create a kind of Christianity that doesn't cost obedience where you live life on your terms the way it suits you and you say jesus is probably all right with that because he is not and so he raises the bar this is jesus basically whittling away this crowd to nothing imagine you get a large crowd you go first of all i gotta be first in everything and if that didn't scare away half the crowd he's going also there is no limit to how much you have to obey me if you're going to follow me what did the cross mean to Jesus. I think from the very start of his life, Jesus knew that he was not here just to have a good time. He was here for a purpose. In John 4.34, he says very clearly when his disciples worried that he might be hungry, teacher, eat something. Here's what Jesus says. Guys, my food, my my nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus understood very early in his life that the entire purpose of his existence was to obey his heavenly father. In fact, he gave a very clear and concise mission statement for his life in Luke 19.10. For the son of man, speaking of himself, came to seek and to save those who are lost. Now, Jesus understood also that saving the lost would happen through the horror of the cross. He understood that in order for him to do his life's work, there would be an act he would have to go through, something he would have to endure, that no sane person would want to face. And so he said, for him, the entire story of his life was defined by obeying God, even to this extent. What the cross meant for Jesus was that when it comes to following and obeying God, there are no limits to how far. It's like this. You can keep asking more, and he will just keep saying yes. There are no boundaries, no limits to the length we will go in obeying Jesus so that when he calls, no matter what it will cost us or where it will take us, the answer will be yes. Even if it's a grudging yes, even if it's a hesitant yes, 
There is no Christianity in which we say no is a a legitimate option. Do you understand how radical all of this is? I I, I think in in a weird way, when it gets too radical, we get sleepy, don't we? (laughs) And that was my experience when I was younger in the faith, was when somebody started getting too crazy in their sleep, in their sermon, I started falling asleep. It was like my soul's built-in defense mechanism. Go unconscious. Don't hear that. Just, Just tune it out because... This is the truth of Christianity is there's no such thing as a legitimate Christianity where God commands and you go, no, no, but I still want to be a Christian, but no. If you're a, fa- if you're a father, daddies, raise your hand. How many of you like it when your kid just looks right at you and goes, no, no, not going to happen, dad. Uh-uh, uh-uh. My hand curls up. I know I'm a pastor, but I'll hit me some kids, man. I just, when they do that, it just starts something in me. It's like, oh, you don't say that to your daddy. The definition of daddy is when daddy says you do, man. You don't tell me no to my face. But because we're not God and we don't want to go to jail, they can say no. And you're like, dang it. I should have raised them better. <laughs> right? But there's no legitimate way to relate to God as your father while you stare right at him and go, no. No, I'm not going to do that. I want all the benefits, but no, I'm not. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. You guys like that little? Some of us have fashioned for ourselves a version of Christianity that, in fact, appears to work that way. I decide how far I'll go with God. I get to still call him God. I get to still draw on all the benefits of God, but he doesn't really get to be God. He gets to be the big buddy in the sky, my wingman, my rear guard, my advanced scouting force. Is that really who God is to us today? What the cross meant to Jesus was that no matter how much he would wrestle with what God asked of him, in the end, he would say as he did in that long night of prayer and toil in the garden on the eve of his crucifixion, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, meaning the cup of suffering. I don't want to drink that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And with those simple seven words, he was teaching us what it looks like to follow God is that you're allowed to be free in your speaking to him, protesting, being hesitant, not wanting where he's asking you to go, and yet at the end of the day, if God is actually God to you, there is no other alternative but to look at him and say, but what am I going to do? Nevertheless, because you are God, and you have traded my old life for new, not what I want, but what you want for me. And what Jesus says is, without this radical commitment to obey, you simply cannot be the disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't get mad at me. I'm not saying all of this. Jesus is saying all of it. Let me give you one last cost that Jesus identifies. And that is a cost of being dependent on someone else for everything. Jesus, I know you can't really read that easily, but he wraps up 
this little piece of teaching with two mini parables. One is about a guy who wants to build a tower, and the other is about a king who wants to go to war against another king. And in both cases, the idea is this. If you want to do something major, you better pause a second and think about what that's going to cost you. Because lots of things start out well. I was just thinking about stuff that starts out well and then kind of fizzles over time. Things like marriage, you know, you have this huge party, everyone's happy. You walk in a room with your bride, they're all clapping like you're a movie star. And the day start, the whole thing starts with such a great optimistic upswing. And then within a month, you're like, oh yeah, marriage. Right? Isn't that the reality? Here's another one, road trips. You pop in that CD, you're like, oh yes, blast these tunes, you know. But then about 20 miles in, you're like, we got another six hours together in the car. My breath smells bad. It seems like I've been rubbing Crisco in the roof of my mouth, and I just feel gross. And, you know, things start out so well, so full of energy, but everything in life eventually settles into the long, long toil, doesn't it? And so what Jesus is saying is, this is not a small thing you're walking into. If you're going to start a journey, pause a second and think about what that journey looks like, what you're actually being invited into. If your friend said, hey, do you want to take a road trip with me? And you say, yes, and you're like, we're going to Alaska. You're like, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Alaska? That's a long road trip. And he's saying, before you just say yes and jump in enthusiastically, Pause a minute and think about what that's going to cost you. And in both stories, he says, these two men thought about it. They counted the cost. And in both cases, they came up short. The guy building the tower laid a big foundation. He's like, it's going to be 80 stories. And he built this big base. And then it got up to like two stories. And he never built any more. And everyone walked by and said, remember? when he was going to build that big tower. Big man. Look at and, and that's the whole story. If you don't count the cost, you will come up short. Now, it's tempting to think that the moral of the story is, well, before you follow Jesus, you better get all your ducks in a row. You better think about who you are and sharpen your knives and all that so that when you come to Jesus, you're like, here, I've been working on this for 40 years. This is me. I'm going to give it to you. It's awesome. Please handle this with care. Maybe that's what we think the moral of the story is, is count the cost and then save up all your good stuff and give Jesus everything you got. But that is not the moral of the story at all because in both parables, the men fail. The moral of the story is you don't have enough. You won't ever have enough for this journey. You can dig deep and bring out the best stuff you've got and still not going to be enough to take you the distance. The Pharisees lived under the deception that maybe if they dug deep enough, if they worked hard enough, they could have enough to go the distance with God. And that's precisely where they were absolutely wrong. The reason Jesus tells these stories at the end is to say, if you want to follow me, you have to be sober-minded and realize you can't do this by deciding to follow me. You're going to fizzle out. The journey of Christian life is a highway with lots of exit ramps. How many of you guys have been a Christian longer than 10 years? Just raise your hand. Okay, thank you. Those of you who raise your hand, how many times on that 10-year-plus journey have you been tempted to just get off the road? Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand. I, I mean, but 
Many, many times I've been tempted to go, why do we live like this? I, who needs this? It looks so attractive on the other side. Look at all those happy people. Drinking, smoking, and, you know, partying and not giving their money to the church. And it just looks so much more carefree. And, and I've thought so many times, wouldn't it be nice not to care about anybody? Just to wipe my feet of the whole world and just say, you guys handle your own problems. I got my junk. Do you ever feel like that? I realized one of the greatest costs of the Christian journey is not quitting. Going the distance, seeing this thing through to the end. And what Jesus says is, if that's your intention, you cannot think even for a moment, you'll make it to the end on your own power. Discipleship is a journey of dependence. And that's hard for us to accept. And it's truly a cost in America to hear that because we don't like to be dependent on anyone. One of the greatest goals of American culture is financial what? Freedom, independence. To have so much money that you can't hurt me. You can't tell me what to do. I can buy my way out of just about every difficulty. My money is my savior. It frees me from having to care what you do or what you say. There is no pressure that can be exerted against me because my money gives me power. We live in a culture that worships independence from anything else. We make heroes out of self-made people. Who, who looks at, um, what's her name, Ivanka Trump, is that her name? Donald Trump's daughter, and says, wow, what a hero. She was so, she so heroically inherited Billions. She just popped out of that birth canal with such courage and just got all... Nobody says that. Our heroes are not people who are trust fund babies. Our heroes are the people who started out as a sharecropper's son and now owns everything. Dang, how'd you do that? That's unbelievable. From rags to riches because we love self-made people. What we don't want is to have to live our whole lives depending on anyone. Let me ask you, let's put this to the test, really. Let's get down to kind of personal. Which scenario would you rather have, honestly? Would you rather God says to you, I'm going to deposit one million cash in your checking account today? Or would you rather have God say, I'm going to take every last penny out of your checking account, but I'm going to trade you for this promise. I will always unfailingly take care of you every day. Just come to me. Depend on me every day. I'll make sure you're taken care of. I'll give you everything you need. Which scenario? Let, let's just, uh, <laughs> I would love to just have you raise your hand. Who would pick A and who would pick B? Does A sound attractive to you? Does B sound attractive to anyone? What? Hold on, what? You're going to take everything I already have out? You're going to zero me out and give me a promise instead? But really, that's Christianity. It's the invitation. He's not saying, I'm going to give you all you need so you don't have, you can be independent of me. He's saying, I'm going to take away everything you have and make you absolutely dependent on me because then we will actually have a relationship. So which one sounds more like the way you've pursued Christ in your life? Is it Jesus, Jesus, please give us everything we need so that we don't need to keep asking you? Or is it Jesus, give me today my daily bread. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but just what I need 
for this day so that every day I will need to come to you again and acknowledge who you are to me. Which describes better the picture of your faith journey right now? Because I see a lot of people claim faith, but the decisions they make don't seem to display much faith at all. It displays worry, fear, uncertainty, doubt. It seems like many of us are deciding the course of our lives as though there is no God who watches over us. There is just this hard scrabble decision-making we do. The resourcefulness, the creativity we apply, we have to save ourselves because God may not be paying attention in the midst of this crisis. Look at the timetable. Look at the situation. Does it look like God can really rescue us from this? I have to take matters into my own hands. I have to fix this. That's the way many of us actually live. That's why it says in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There are no self-made people in the train of people who are following Jesus Christ. Every one of us acknowledges that what I brought here isn't worth enough. I have to stay connected to him every day. I have to depend on him. I have to be weak, not strong, when I come to him. For us Americans, that's a huge cost, isn't it? It's not easy to live like that. As we face the start of a new year, I want to ask you not to just start running, assuming everything's all systems go. I want to ask you to really pause and think about the way you have followed Christ up to now. I'm going to end the message with an excerpt and a brief story about a man. He is easily one of my top three human heroes um, in the world. He's not alive now, but his book has changed my whole life. You know, we read these seemingly contradictory ideas in Scripture, that the gospel is a free gift of grace, but then out of this other side of his mouth, Jesus says, there's a high cost to follow me. How do I reconcile the cost of discipleship with the free gift of grace? Well, this author put one of the most beautiful explanations together. And he calls it costly grace. Here's what he says. Just listen. I didn't flash the words up because I want you to really think about what you're hearing. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his good, his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must, which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner.
Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. The man who wrote those words was named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you are familiar with him. He was a German and an evangelical pastor and theologian living at the time of the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. And unlike so many of his fellow churchmen, he was rare among the Christian leaders in Germany of his day in being very bold and outspoken against Hitler, for he early on identified the real spiritual threat this man and his movement posed to the presence and movement of God in Germany. Way before Hitler rose to full power, he identified that this man is a toxin to the country and must be stopped. In fact, as Hitler's power grew, he became so convinced of the danger of this man, he even, and I think this is misguided of him, but he joined in an assassination attempt to take Hitler's life because he was so convinced this man would bring an end to the, the presence of God in a long, rich history of Germany. As his outspoken vocal opposition became more and more troubling, and, and his friends realized he was going to get in big trouble, some American friends managed to smuggle him out of Germany and get him out into, into London and ultimately the United States. And from that place of safety, he began to get a growing conviction. And what he said was, I need to go back to Germany. And not because he was a loyal German, but because he felt the call of Christ to return and to do this. And here's his reasoning. He said, I cannot participate in the rebuilding of Christian life in Germany if I do not go and, and suffer with my brothers in this time of trial. I can't watch it from a place of safety and then swoop in later and fix what is broken. And so he went back after he had already gotten safety. And eventually, uh, the things he was doing landed him in the concentration camp at Flossenburg. And there, just days before the Allies liberated that concentration camp, by direct order of Himmler, he was hung, stripped naked, made ashamed before everyone in the camp, and he was hanged and he died just days before the camp was set free. But in the time he was free, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And when you understand the story of the man's life, and the extent to which he lived out these convictions about what it means to follow Jesus, you can receive the words of a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship without smirking and without being cynical. The camp doctor who witnessed the execution wrote these words later. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That really stirs me. And though he was just a man, 
I want to hold such men up next to me as a standard by which I measure my followership of Jesus Christ. And then, guys, we're living in times where entertainment is life. And we have such a shortage of serious men and women. But life is serious. And the call that goes out to you today is to get serious about your followership of Jesus Christ. At least give it a hero's try. Chase it down. Explore it. For just this one year, see if the exchange is worth it. You might discover that the life you feared losing is the life you would gladly exchange for the new life you get. You might be very surprised by Jesus Christ this year. Let's bow and pray. One of the frustrating things about preaching is that when God gives birth to a sermon in a preacher's heart, it's not just words. It is conviction. It is a strength of feeling, a movement of God. That, And the frustrating part is the only way I can actually communicate that to you is with words. And words very often don't seem powerful enough to tell the tale. I really feel this year that God is reaching out to some of you. This is the year that your defenses will fall and he will win the battle for your heart in a profound way. You've been fighting a long time. But don't fight against someone who wants to give you life. So with that heart of expectation... And with just a measure of trust, take one more step in surrendering to saying, what if I try really following Jesus this year? Making the trade old lives for new. What if? What if this is the year that Jesus really surprises me with a life I could not imagine being without? I know that some of you are sitting near somebody that you've been praying for for a very long time. Somebody that you have been asking God to just break into their heart. And that's good you've been praying like that. I want to encourage you to continue. But don't be so quick to presume that the invitation is not for you too. One of my great excitements this year is I feel like I'm hearing the call of God follow. I feel like I'm going to grow this year. So I'd just like to give everybody just another couple minutes to hear the invitation for you yourself. Maybe you've been running on a 20-year-old faith for a very long time. It's gotten stale. And you say, come and follow me all over again. Jesus, we acknowledge you in this place this morning. We acknowledge you as the central figure of the Christian journey. We acknowledge that we are not Christians because we believe something that is right. We are Christians because we trust you. We believe you. And we follow you. 
And God, we pray that if Christianity has just become a way of life or a belief system to us, you would rescue us from that dead life and bring us back to Jesus Christ whom we will follow. I pray for those who have been walking behind you for a long time and have maybe fallen behind, have coasted on a faith that was of another time. Just pray that you would renew the invitation to us to come to you and to follow. I pray, God, that for all of us this year, it would be a year of exciting and genuine spiritual revival. It would be a year where stale things are made fresh, where our hearts are renewed. We're excited again, just about knowing you, being alive in you. We pray it will be a year filled with possibilities, a year where we live on the edge of faith, where we put it all on the line and trust you and watch you come and rescue us. At the center of it all, Jesus, be there as the one we see, the one we follow, the one we trust. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.